So we've been in a series going through the Gospel of Matthew for a little while now, and we are going to continue that this morning. But before we get into today's passage, I am going to do a little bit of review via a pop quiz for y'all. So hopefully that doesn't bring back any triggering experiences from high school or anything, but we're going to do a pop quiz. Now, I know that people don't typically like to raise their hand in church, so let's warm up real quick. Everybody raise up your right hand. Okay, beautiful. Left hand. Right hand. Right hand. Let No. <laughs> so I want you to vote. That was the point of the hand raising. And here is the question that I want you to answer. You're gonna, it's going to be multiple choice. You'll have four options. The question is, what is the primary message of the Gospel of Matthew? What is the main thing that the Gospel of Matthew is communicating? So, option number A, Jesus died for you to forgive you of your sins. B, Jesus resurrected from the dead to give you new creation life. Three, or three, C, <laughs> don't know why I just switched forms there. C, Christ's work on the cross allows you to be justified by grace through faith, or D, none of the above. Okay, everybody, I want you all to vote. That's why we warmed up, so go ahead, take a look at those options. If you have no clue, just choose one of them. What do you think the primary message of the Gospel of Matthew is? So who thinks it's A, Jesus died to forgive you for your, of your sins? Who thinks it's B, Jesus resurrected from the dead to give you new creation life? Awesome. C, Christ's work on the cross allows you to be justified by grace through faith? Or D, none of the above? Okay. You guys did better than the first service. Give yourselves a round of applause. <laughs> Good job. The correct answer is D, none of the above. Now, that can be shocking because we think, wait a minute, the story of Jesus coming, you're telling me that's not primarily about his forgiveness of sins or resurrection from the dead or new creation life or justification by grace through faith. And don't hear what I'm not saying. Those are all certainly communicated in the Gospel of Matthew and are essential doctrines of Christianity but they are not the primary message that we get from reading the Gospel of Matthew. So what is the primary message? It's Matthew 4, verse 17. Micah, can you bring me my paper right there? Thank you, bro, I appreciate it. <laughs> sure, clap for Micah. <clears throat> what is the primary message of the Gospel of Matthew? This is it, Matthew 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The primary message of the book of Matthew, and actually of all the gospel writers, is repent, so change the way you think, change the way that you look at life, because God's kingdom is invading this earth. That is the primary message of the Gospels. 
in his book, How God Became King by N.T. Wright. Anyone ever heard of N.T. Wright before by a show of hands? A few of you. In his book, How God Became King, N.T. Wright makes this fascinating point using church history as an example. He talks about how the church in the first few centuries created these creeds. And these creeds were declarations of truth that all Christians were agreeing on that were purposed to combat heresies that were trying to enter into the church. So you may have heard one of the creeds before. They go something like, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, etc. So there were a number of heresies that the early church created these creeds to combat. But N.T. Wright makes the point that these creeds eventually became the filter through which the entire church read scripture. And so everything was forced to fit into the lens that these creeds created or forced to go through. And some misunderstandings of scripture have come as a result of that. This is what he says. The great creeds, when they refer to Jesus, passed directly from his virgin birth to his suffering and death. They don't say anything about his life or ministry or anything in between. The four gospels, on the other hand, don't. Or to put it the other way around, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all seem to think it's hugely important that they tell us a great deal about what Jesus did between the time of his birth and the time of his death. In particular, they tell us about what we might call his kingdom inaugurating work the deeds and words that declared that God's kingdom was coming then and there, in some sense or other, on earth as in heaven. They tell us a great deal about that. The great creeds don't. The creeds go straight from Matthew 2 to Matthew 28. But what about everything in between? That, the content of Matthew 3 through 27, actually, The primary focus of the content between Matthew 3 and 27 is not salvation by grace through faith. It's not forgiveness of sins. It's not new creation life. It is the kingdom of God. It is the message that the God of Israel has come back for his people that are in exile. And not just for them, but for the whole world. And he's not coming primarily as a teacher or a prophet, or revolutionary, or a moral leader, but the Messiah is coming as king to set up the everlasting kingdom. That's the primary message of the Gospels, all of the Gospels. Now, before you stone me as a heretic, <laughs> obviously, forgiveness of sin, salvation by grace through faith, etc., are critical doctrines. And I wouldn't even say they're more important doctrines than the kingdom of God. Um, Paul, in his work in the epistles in the um, New Testament, they do a great job of explaining the resurrection and the crucifixion and salvation by grace through faith and, and all new creation life. That's an amazing contribution Paul made to scripture. And so we should value that. But at the same time, rather than interpreting the gospels through Paul or through the creeds, What we should do is let the gospels speak for themselves and ask ourselves, what is the message that these authors 
were trying to communicate to their audiences, to the churches that they were writing to. And it's the kingdom of God. And for the last few months, we've been in the section of Matthew called the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew 5 through 7. Uh, we actually finished Matthew 5 last Sunday. Shout out to my amazing wife who gave a powerful message on loving enemies. So good. If you missed that one, definitely go and, go and listen to it. But we've been in the Sermon on the Mount, and the Sermon on the Mount really is Jesus explaining and fleshing out what he means by the statement, the kingdom of God is at hand. Really the whole repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The Sermon on the Mount is the fleshing out of that. In a lot of ways, the Sermon on the Mount is kind of like Jesus's manifesto. So you, th- you, like, you read it through history. Um, great leaders or horrible dictators, they usually come with like, a, you know, early on with like this manifesto that's like their philosophy for how you should see the world. And this is what the Sermon on the Mount is for Jesus. And, and the Sermon on the Mount is arguably his most important message, perhaps alongside the Upper Room Discourse which was kind of, which was in the end of the Gospel of John. And that sermon was kind of like his explanation as to how the, what he talked about in the Sermon on the Mount can actually come to be. But the Sermon on the Mount is, is kind of like his kingdom manifesto, and it explains what it looks like to think and to live in the kingdom. And in the Sermon on the Mount and just throughout the whole book of Matthew, Jesus makes sure to contrast the kingdom of God with two earthly institutions. Jesus makes sure to show how the kingdom of God is different from both the state and from the church or the religious institution of Judaism. Jesus really makes this clear throughout the Gospel of Matthew. I mean, with the state, Jesus says in multiple of the Gospels that He says to his disciples, look, the rulers of the kingdoms of this world, they lord their authority over their subjects, but not so with you. In fact, what I want you to do is to serve, and I want you to put them first and make yourself last. And I know that passage typically gets thought of as like this great servant leadership passage. Let's put it in every Christian leadership book out there. And and it it is a great passage on servant leadership, but it's so much more than that. Like this passage is essentially saying, hey, if you don't like someone's behavior, if you think the way someone is acting, the way someone is acting is wrong or harmful or whatever, the way the kings of this world would handle that is by forcing that behavior to change on the threat of violent force. But not so with you. What I want you to do is to serve that person. What I want you to do is to love that person, to put that person first. And again, don't hear what I'm not saying. There is obviously um, a time and place for governmental authority. But the way of the kingdom is I'm not going to force you to change. In fact, rather than trying to force you to change, I'm going to serve you. You know that person in your life who is really irritating and you really wish they would start acting differently? You know what the way of the kingdom is to change them? Wash their feet serve them, love them sacrificially. 
But what is our first impulse usually as human beings? To be hostile towards them, control them, change them, force them to do what we think is right. It's not the way of the kingdom. This is also why Jesus, when he's before Pontius Pilate, he says, my kingdom is not of this world, for if it were, my followers would be fighting right now to free me from your rule or to free me from your bondage. And it's true. The way of the kingdoms of this world, if, if one of the kingdoms of this world, you know, back then it was Rome, if a Roman leader was captured and in bondage to a hostile nation, the Roman army would be going, going for that leader. Or the empire of Babylon or even the kingdom of America, if I might be so bold as to say. That if an American leader is captured by an enemy nation, obviously the way of the kingdom of this world is to fight, using violence if necessary, to free that leader. But Jesus is saying, this is not the way of my kingdom. In fact, what I'm about to do on the cross is actually the clearest picture of the way of my kingdom that you will ever see. In his book that I just quoted earlier, N.T. Wright makes the point that Jesus on the cross is actually the moment of his enthronement as king of the universe. And the picture of the Messiah being killed by those who hate him, motivated by sacrificial love for both those he loves, or those both, both those that love him and both those that hate him, that is the epitome of the way of the kingdom of God. Not violent force, not my will, being done, but the will of sacrificial love, of laying down one's life for others. Jesus makes it clear that there's a difference between the way of the kingdom and the kingdoms of this world, and also a difference between the way of the kingdom of God and the, the religion of Judaism, which he goes into more specifically in the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to cover some of that in a second. But with all that review said, let's dive into the passage for the morning. So we're in Matthew 6, just finished Matthew 5, verses 1 through 4. Let's read it. Take care not to practice your righteousness in the sight of people, to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets so that they will be praised by people. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your charitable giving will be in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So in the chapter before, Jesus is primarily critiquing the teachings of the Pharisees the teachings of the religious establishment. If you, you know, we just finished Matthew 5, you can look back. Starting in verse 20, there are six different commands from the Mosaic law that Jesus reinterprets. And he's not reinterpreting them as in modifying them, but he's reinterpreting them as bringing out the original heart of God behind the Mosaic law. So for example, the first one says, uh, you shall not murder, and whoever murders is liable to judgment. And Jesus flips that and says, look, it's, I mean, not murdering should be the bare minimum. 
Like that should be the very, the bare, like turn to your neighbor and say, hey, not killing someone is the bare minimum for you. <laughs> not killing, not murdering, it should be the bare minimum. But what Jesus says is, look, that law was not given so that you could refrain from murdering someone, but have murderous, hateful, angry desires in your heart towards people. Like the point of that command was get your heart to be in a place where you would never even conceive of murdering someone else because you love them so much, regardless of how they treat you. So he radically reinterprets it, doesn't change it, but brings out the true meaning behind it. And then he does that for all five other commands, the one about adultery and divorce and about resisting evildoers and loving enemies and swearing oaths. And so in chapter five, Jesus is critiquing the teaching of the religious establishment. But in chapter six, Jesus shifts to critiquing the deeds of the religious establishment or the deeds of the religious leaders. And so in, in chapter six, Jesus starts off by bringing up what every Jew would know to be the big three of personal piety and righteousness. Or here's how R.T. France says it. Jesus thus begins to deal with three spiritual disciplines, giving, prayer, and fasting. These three were and are the most prominent practical requirements for personal piety in mainstream Judaism. So these were like the big three. Like if you gave to the poor, you fasted and you prayed, you were really righteous in God's eyes. And the critique that Jesus is going to make over the next chapter is that while the religious leaders were giving to the poor, praying and fasting, they were doing it with the wrong heart or with wrong motives. And I think it would be a wise for us as we're thinking about the situation they were in to think about what would kind of be the big three Vineyard Northwest spiritual practices, if you will. Now, obviously prayer, fasting, giving to the poor would be in the top 10 for sure, but what about worshiping? We love to worship around here. What about gifts of the spirit and seeking God's face to have an encounter with him and and evangelism, like those might be the, the big three or the big four for us here at Vineyard Northwest. And I think if Jesus was teaching this message to us, he would, and he came into the room and got on stage and relieved me, I think he would probably say something like, hey, Vineyard Northwest, when you are worshiping me, don't worship me in such a way so as to impress the people around you with your worship. Or don't, engage with the gifts of the Holy Spirit so as to wow people with how you function in the supernatural. Or don't seek after a personal encounter with me so that you can tell everyone around you how amazing your encounter was. Or, or don't, don't go out in the streets and engage in power evangelism and see signs and wonders happen just so that you have an amazing story. I think that's, that is like the message that he would be giving us as a church. And so that leads into my first point then of application from this passage. The way of the kingdom is to do the right thing for the right reason. 
It's not just to do the right thing. In fact, it's pretty easy to do the right thing. What's actually difficult, what actually takes virtue, is to do the right thing for the right reason. And the religious leaders of the day, and all throughout humanity since, people do the right things, but for the wrong reason. This is what Jesus is talking about later on in the book of Matthew in chapter 15, verses 7 through 9. He's talking to the religious leaders, and he says, You hypocrites! Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. This was a problem 2,000 years ago. I hate to say it, but it's still a problem today. There are people and humanity, one of the things we struggle with is honoring God with our lips, saying the right things, doing the right things, but from the wrong heart. I think about if I'm hanging out with friends or family, say we're going out to a restaurant and I see a person in need or a homeless person or someone and, and I give them money to help them out. If I only do that when I'm around people, if I were in the same scenario but alone and I wouldn't give money to the homeless person but because I'm around people, I do it in order to impress them, what am I doing? I'm doing the right thing but with the wrong heart. I'm not doing it because I want to honor God or even because I want to love this person who's in need. I'm doing it because I want to impress the people. I mean, God, this is the spirit of religion, guys. Like, this is what tries to infect every church across the whole world. I guarantee it. This, this pressure to perform and impress other Christians. And all the while, God's like, wow, I'm glad you're trying to impress each other, but why aren't you trying to impress me? <clears throat> So, and you know, in the example, like God will still redeem, if I give to someone in need with the wrong reason, yeah, God's obviously gonna redeem that moment and try to bless that person through my act, but God is establishing his kingdom in that sense, not because of my obedience, but actually in spite of my disobedience. Or God is... He is making a good thing out of a wrong, um, out of a bad desire in me. He's, he's redeeming, but it's not his will. He would, what he wants from us is to do the right thing for the right reason. So pay attention to what motivates you to do good things. Like I think that really is where we need to start. We need to start being aware of what is motivating us to want to do something? And, and if you find yourself, re, if you realize, oh, wow, I actually want to do this not because I want to honor God, but because I want to impress the people around me, like, repent right there and ask God to change your heart and ask God to change your mind. There is real power available for us as followers of Jesus but aligning this heart thing and behavior thing has to precede that. If we don't have the right heart, no matter how amazing the things are that we do, we 
will not see the kingdom flow in power like it could through us. My second point is the way of the kingdom is to be concerned only with impressing God, not other people. We've talked about this. Jesus warns his disciples in this passage of scripture not to do good with the motive of impressing others. And now you might be thinking, well, wait, what about earlier in Matthew chapter five when Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven? Like, isn't there a sense in which we're supposed to let people see our good works? And yes, there is. And I actually love how one of the commentators that I read put it. He said, if you find yourself tempted to hide your good works, Jesus' call for you is to show them. But if you find yourself tempted to show off your good works, Jesus' call for you is to hide them. So it all depends upon where is my heart. Is my heart like wanting to get glory for me and to make myself look good? Okay, I probably don't need to share my good work or my story or my Facebook status in that moment. So it's all about the heart. And the question that I want to camp on for a second is why is it that we actually deal with this temptation to, to impress others with our good deeds or to impress others with our spirituality? Like what is actually behind that dysfunctional heart posture? And I think it can be a number of things, but the very first one is I think our ego. Our ego is behind it. And you know what? I am sure that my ego is a lot bigger than I think it is, and I'm sure your ego is a lot bigger than you think it is. <laughs> That's supposed to be a tongue-in-cheek joke, but <laughs> so don't, yeah, don't, don't for real stone me. No. Um, yeah, you know, our ego gets in the way. There is something about human nature that just loves to be admired and loves to kind of show off, and, and, and so our ego can be something that, that leads us to try to impress people. But it also can just be insecurity. Insecurity. If I feel like I'm a failure, and I'm no good, and I'm never going to succeed at anything, and I'm rejected, and I'm unlovable, and I'm unappreciated, then it's easy for me out of that hurting place, out of that insecure place, to try to do things to make you think that I'm a lot better than I think I am. And so if I can control your perception of me, then you won't ever find out how much of a failure I really am, how messed up I really am. Insecurity can lead us to this. And then also, and lastly, just unhealthy desire for approval. Like sometimes there are just some people that we, in an unhealthy way, desire their approval, and we kind of go out of our way to try to impress them. And often this can come from childhood trauma where we were um, super underappreciated or underrecognized or undervalued by an authority figure in our life. And, and so if, if, that's, if that's the case, if you find yourself ever uh, in, un in an unhealthy way seeking the approval of, of certain people, like there's a lot of understandable reasons for that but there's freedom from that this morning. You don't have to stay in that place. You can seek healing from that. And so, so I think this is kind of why we feel tempted to wow others with our works. 
And I want to pause for a moment and give, again, another Vineyard Northwest-centric word of caution. You see, here at Vineyard Northwest, we have a testimony-sharing culture. And I love our testimony-sharing culture. The Hebrew word for testimony means repeat or do it again. And the idea there is that when we share testimonies, when we share about big things that God has done or ways that God has showed up in our lives, when we share testimonies, we're not just sharing them to excite other people and give them a little pick-me-up, but we're actually prophetically releasing those very things to happen again in the lives of the hearers and in our own lives. And so don't hear what I'm not saying. Testimony sharing is central. I think we could even step into it more at Vineyard Northwest, but I think the word of caution that Jesus would have us take along with our testimony sharing culture is this word about not sharing or doing things to try to impress people. Like it can be a temptation when you're showing up to your house group or when you're showing up to your small group and you know there's gonna be a time of sharing testimonies, there can be a temptation. Oh shoot, I gotta make sure I've got a story to share. Let me go out there and pray for someone and lead someone to the Lord so I can have a good share, a good story to share at house group. And I think that what the Lord would have us do is examine our heart motives in those times of sharing testimonies. And if I realize that I wanna share this story mainly because I wanna impress people around me, I probably shouldn't share it. I should probably keep that story just for me and Jesus. And so, again, it comes back to where is my heart in this? Where is my heart? What is my heart desiring? And if I see that unhealthy heart desire, that desire to impress and wow and get people to admire me, then I need to um, resist that. And it sometimes would mean not sharing my great story. You see, if we, if we live righteously to try to impress people, their admiration for us is our reward. That's what Jesus says here. That if I do something righteous just to impress you, if I do a good deed just to impress you, your admiration of me for that fleeting moment is the reward that I get. But there's a greater reward that Jesus promises us. He says that if we live righteously without concern for how others perceive us, then we are rewarded by God or we get a heavenly reward. So let's, let's, answer, let's ask the question, like what actually is a heavenly reward? Because there are many passages, there are actually more than I thought there were a week ago. There are many passages in the New Testament that talk about this idea of a reward in heaven or a heavenly reward or heavenly treasures. <clears throat> Just a few examples, you may have heard of the story of the rich young ruler in the gospels. Guy comes to Jesus, Jesus says, hey, you're doing everything right, but the one thing that you need to do differently is sell all of your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And the rich angular goes away grieving because he had many possessions. Also in Matthew 5, 12, what we read a few weeks ago, Jesus says, those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake will receive a reward in heaven. And even Paul in Colossians 3, we will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward 
for our obedience. So this idea of a heavenly reward is all throughout Scripture. And it's unfortunately not super clear exactly what that means. Exactly what is that heavenly reward? Is it like degrees of paradise? So kind of like some of you, when you get to heaven, you're going to have like Daytona Beach level paradise, but others of you get like Aruba or Hawaii level paradise, right? So is, it, is that kind of what he means by heavenly reward, like these degrees of paradise? Maybe, maybe something like that. Um, it could also be like admiration or recognition from others. Like no one saw the good thing you did here on earth, but they're going to know about it and see it in heaven. Or I even was talking to a friend once, and uh, he, he believed that it had to do with like heavenly assignments. Like when we get to heaven, we're not just going to be floating up there with a harp for eternity. Like we're going to have stuff to do in heaven. At least that's what I believe. And so perhaps whatever your assignment is in heaven will be, will be, uh, in, will be determined by the amount of heavenly reward that you have stored up. So, you know, some of you guys are going to be janitors in heaven. Others of you, I'm not just, just joking. No one will be a janitor in heaven. And if they are, they'll love it. Um, so most likely what I think this is, is what I think the heavenly reward is, is praise and recognition from God. You see, human beings have this deep, inherent need to be seen. We have the need to be seen. We have the need to be celebrated, to be appreciated, to be recognized. Some of the most painful experiences we can have as human beings is not being seen, is being ignored, or being underappreciated, or not being celebrated, or, or not being valued. And so what I believe someday is going to happen is you're going to be in heaven with Jesus, and he's going to look you in the eyes, and he's going to say, hey, I saw what you did for that person that no one else saw and that no one else knows about, and I just want to tell you, good job. Wow, I'm so proud of you. I think that heavenly reward is going to be knowing that God is proud of us and knowing that God sees what we did even if no one else saw it and even if no one else appreciated it or celebrated it, that God saw it. And whatever it is, it's going to feel like the most satisfying reward you can possibly imagine. So even if the idea of God like thanking you like that doesn't sound that compelling right now. When, we're, when you're actually there and you're looking him in the eyes, there's going to be nothing more exhilarating that you've ever experienced than that, than his admiration and recognition for you. But the scary reality is if we do good deeds to impress people, we miss out on that reward. There's a sense in which we just don't get it. Solomon, hundreds of years before Jesus, talked about this same idea. He said in Proverbs 29, The fear of man brings a snare, but one who trusts in the Lord 
will be protected. By the way, Shannon, you can come out. The fear of man brings a snare. The fear of man, that's just another way of saying concern for how other people think of me or worry about how other people are perceiving of me or what their opinion is of me. That's the fear of man. And what he's saying here is that caring about what other people think too much is a trap. It traps us. But when we trust in the Lord, when his praise and him seeing us is enough, we will be protected. So let God be the one who sees you. I know there are probably many of you in here who are experiencing the pain of not being seen right now. Or not, I don't know if it's at work or in your family or in a friendship or in a relationship, but maybe you're feeling underappreciated. No one is really appreciating what I'm doing or under-celebrated or undervalued. Maybe you're feeling taken for granted or taken advantage of. Whatever it is, what I feel like God wants to say to you this morning is, even if no one else sees you, I see you. I see what you're doing. I see your heart in that situation. I'm so proud of the way you're handling yourself. I'm so proud of what you didn't say to that person that you could have said. I'm so proud of what you did say to that person that you didn't want to say. Hey, when you apologized and they completely wrote you off and disregard your apology, I saw that. And I'm so proud of you for that. I believe God is wanting to make us, let us know that he sees us this morning and to free us from needing the approval of other people and to free us from needing to impress or feel validated by other people. And so if, if that's you in any sense of what I've described and you wanna receive that freedom this morning, you, know, you can put your hand on your heart, you can put your hand out. If all that's too scary, just tell God right now on your own that you wanna receive from him. But Jesus, thank you that you see us. Thank you that you celebrate us, you value us, you recognize us. And I, I thank you, Lord, for everyone in this room who has been doing good in secret and doing good that hasn't been recognized and doing good that is underappreciated. I think even for some of you, you are this close to just giving up on doing the right thing because no one seems to care about it. God's like, no, I care about it. Keep going. Keep doing the right thing. And right now, in Jesus' name and with Jesus' authority, I just release freedom over you. Right now, freedom from the fear of man. Fear of man fall off right now in Jesus' name. Healing over you. I speak healing over you. Healing from wounds of, of being taken for granted and wounds of being 
over a long period of time underappreciated healing over you in Jesus' name. And Father, would you fill our hearts right now with your peace and your confidence and, and I thank you, Lord, that you see us even when no one else does. In Jesus' name, amen.